Hello there. How are you doing? Welcome to Wednesday's Richie Allen Show. It is uh, the 6th of April, 2022. It's been a grim old day up north. In fact, it's been grim all week thus far. But you're here. That's all that matters. Thanks again for joining me. It should be an interesting programme. Take part at richieallen.co.uk. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, a little bit later on in the program, Robert Inlakesh will return to the Richie Allen Show. It's been quite some time since Robert was here. He's a journalist, a political analyst, and documentary filmmaker. Um, Read a very interesting op-ed by Robert on RT.com a couple of weeks ago, invited him back. Lots to talk about with Robert, the Middle East, Palestine we'll get into, and of course Ukraine as well. Robert, a bit later on, before that, I'm going to gently run through some of the day's biggest news stories and some of the smallest ones too. That's what I'm going to do. RichieAllen.co.uk, comment live on the menu bar, leave me a comment. And I'll read them out as we go along. Yes, indeedy. I'm all right today, but last week I was in rough shape. I got to tell you, channeling my inner Rodney Dangerfield there. Let me start off with this. I had no real intention of starting off with this. And then I thought I should say something about it. Because it's a a sign of the times. Hang on again. (laughs) It's the time of year that's in it. Going to have a little sup of agua sin gas. Fluent in Spanish. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not really. My vocabulary consists of about 17 words. Por favor, por favor, dos cerveza. Por favor, dos cerveza. Cerveza, right, okay. Cerveza. I wasn't going to get into it, but uh, but I will. Partly because the man in question is probably unperturbed. Do you like that? Unperturbed. But David Ike, formerly of this parish, is the subject of a story in Vice or Vice.com. It's been picked up by the Mail on Sunday. Excuse me, it's been picked up by the Mail Online, rather. And The Independent, I'll read you a little bit of it. I think it's important because it it um, speaks to an, an agenda that we've spoken about, that you and I have talked about quite a lot of late. An American man who was obsessed with QAnon was accused of killing his children last August with a spear gun, allegedly told investigators that he was influenced by British conspiracy theorist David Icke. This is according to an affidavit. Now, it's Matthew Taylor, 40-year-old guy who used to work as a surfing instructor. In fact, it's Matthew Taylor Coleman. When he got back to the United States from Mexico in August of last year, he was arrested after the bodies of his two and 10-year-old children were discovered. He allegedly, as they said, killed them with a spear gun. So he admitted to the FBI 
that he believed his children would turn into monsters because they had, quote, lizard DNA passed down from his wife. This is according to prosecutors. The theory about lizard people is heavily associated with QAnon and the far right. Now, that's according to Vice. That's news to me. I, if you've been with me long enough, I rubbished the QAnon thing from the very beginning. And so did David Icke. Let's not forget. That's important in the context of this story, right? Um, but even though I dismissed it out of hand, having looked at it, which I think is your job, I don't remember lizard people, but maybe it's because my memory is shot to pieces. I don't know. Anyway, Coleman became obsessed with QAnon and the associated conspiracy series about lizard people controlling the world because he listened to David Icke. This is according to an affidavit filed by the FBI on March 28th this year, last week. Mr Icke, I'm reading now from The Independent, the British conspiracy theorist and former television presenter and footballer has been banned from social media platforms including Twitter and YouTube, after spreading COVID misinformation. He's also been accused of sharing other baseless fringe theories. This is wonderful. This is the independent. This is the press in all of its glory. Which baseless fringe theories? You might be entitled to ask. You won't get an answer from the independent, or from Vice, or from anyone else. Right. This is very, very, very serious. I think... What they're doing there, Voice and the Mail Online and the Independent, and apparently it's all over Twitter, is they are recklessly associating David Icke with the murder of two young children by a man who was obviously seriously unwell at the time. Why do I say, well, do I have any proof he was seriously unwell? I think you need to be seriously unwell or fairly evil, maybe unimaginably so, to do that to two children, two and ten. You can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. To link David Icke with it is beyond disgusting. It's also very, very sinister because of the implications of it. Now, back in 2014, I and my better half, El Frogo herself, we were living in Brent. We were living in North Wembley. Stone's throw from Wembley Stadium. I was working there, as was David Icke at the time, and he rented the spare room in our apartment. He lived with us for just a little over a year. We got on well, the three of us. We made it work at the time. It was it was fine. And one time during that period, I can't remember the exact date, I went looking for it today, but I couldn't find it. He was going back to the Isle of Wight to tidy up a bit of business there for a day before returning to London. And there was a story in the Daily Mirror about a young man in the north of the country. If memory serves, it may have been Yorkshire, but it might have been Durham. A young man had attempted to reduce his heartbeat by submerging himself in very cold water. Now, I, I don't remember, recall, if it was a lake or a river, or something. You may have seen a movie years ago, a film, I should say, with Kiefer Sutherland and Julia Roberts in it, and maybe Kevin Bacon too. It was called Flatliners. It was about a group of young, sexy doctors who were 
taking it in turns to be flatlined, to have their core body temperature reduced to the point where their hearts would stop. Why were the doctors doing it in the fictional film? Well, they wanted to see if there was a hereafter. Not the greatest film of all time, but the premise was very interesting. Now, it was alleged that this young man did what he did, and this young man died now, performing this experiment. The, 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 the Daily Mirror ran a story where the mother blamed David Icke for it. It was as open and shut a case of libel as you will ever see. And I may have said this before, but not to be boastful in any way, I'm an expert in libel law. You won't find anyone as better briefed or as well briefed in libel law than me. I used to have to be uh, briefed in libel law and I've updated my knowledge of it through the years uh, because of jobs I've had in the past. I'm the go-to guy. Can we run this? <clears throat> Excuse me. And if I don't know, which is unlikely, you'll go to a solicitor. This was stone-cold libel. Because the mother said it was David Icke's fault, the mirror ran it, meaning the mirror took ownership of it. Libel is an interesting thing. David Icke then had the opportunity, if he chose to, of suing the publishing group, the editor of the newspaper, the journalist, and the mother of the child, if he so chose. Now, this was so open and shut, in fact, that a friend of mine at the, at the time was working for a well-known law firm in London which uh, specialised in libel cases. And she got in touch with me to, to beg me to convince David Icke to be represented by them. They said, this is as open and shut as it gets. He said no at the time. He said, Richie, I've had loads of opportunities to sue over the years, but I prefer not to. And he gave some pretty credible reasons. Why not? I tried to twist his arm and I said, look, do it and use the money. It could be six figures. In fact, it'll be seven figures. Use the money for projects, independent media projects in the future. But he gave me some compelling reasons why he wouldn't do it. And energy had a lot to do with it. Genuinely, he said, look, I've never done it. I'm not going to do it now. And he kind of brushed it off. I got the impression at the time, to his credit, that he was... He was Having me on a little bit in terms of when he, when he said this didn't bother him in the slightest, I thought it bother, bothered him a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. That they could say stuff like this and more or less get away with it. That was in 2014. This is today. Um, he probably won't be bothered about it today, but, but maybe he will. Maybe he will, because the worrying thing here is, this is a different era now, 2022 to 2014, is the idea of, of harm, of online harm, which is a big thing, not just with the UK government, but with other governments. In fact, the majority of Western governments. The idea that the opinions of a, whether it be a well-known person or not so well-known person, but that those opinions could cause harm, opinions, sentences constructed, where a person says, I think this or I think that. I think those jabs are not as tested or as rigorously examined as they should, should have been, therefore I wouldn't be taking one. Well, that could be harmful because someone might listen to you, not take the jab, become ill and be, 
and die. You and I know that's bollocks, but that's the way it's going. Now, Vice, which is a big deal, Vice, in the online media sphere, the Mail Online, the Independent, and every other newspaper in this country that is repeating this garbage, okay, is giving oxygen to the idea that the opinions of David Icke, that there are interdimensional beings, reptilians, manipulating events on planet Earth, that those opinions could, if you follow the yellow brick road, could lead to a gentleman, not a gentleman, to a madman murdering his two children. And that is incredibly dangerous. And it's here now. Back in 2014, when that crappy story appeared in the mirror, and I phoned the journalist who wrote it, it was a woman whose name escapes me, and I invited her to debate me on air. This was in London, at TPV Television. I said, let's get you on the air and talk about this story. Let's get the woman whose son passed away, who accused David Icke of murder. Absolute nonsense. Let's get her on the air. As tough as it must be for the woman coming to terms with the loss of her son. We can't have this. But back in 2014, nobody then was calling for the entire cancellation of David Icke. The shutting down of him online, the shutting down of him financially. Nobody. Today, they are calling for him online to be shut down entirely. For every uh, website, every social media company to stop carrying the the uh, videos of, of Iconic.com, which is a platform run by his sons. They're calling for him to be financially penalised. All this social crediting stuff we talk about, they're calling for this today because the papers ran a story saying that some bloke killed his children and it's connected to the opinions of David Icke. It's fairly sinister, is, is, is an understatement. Another way of putting it is, this is terrifying. This is an idea now that's here to stay. And we've talked about it quite a bit, so I should leave it go right now, not get into it in too much depth, because no doubt as the online harms bill progresses its way through Parliament, we'll talk a lot more about it in the future. The time is coming up already, would you believe, for quarter past five. The news following this. The news with me, Richie Allen, live on richieallen.co.uk, the TuneIn app, and Fab Radio 2 in Manchester. I'm the BBG. This is the most listened to independent news radio show in the world. It really is. Welcome to it. Thanks for joining me. CeeLo Green and Bright Lights, Bigger City on The Richie Allen Show. It's 18 minutes past five. Right, lots on Ukraine a little bit later this hour and some in hour two, but let's kick off with this today. Newly unearthed letters show or reveal that Prince Charles, the heir to the throne, asked the advice of Jimmy Savile on how the royal family could improve its media relations. That, of course, is Jimmy Savile, the record-breaking paedophile. Yes, Apparently, Charles contacted him after Prince Andrew had been criticised for making comments about the Lockerbie bombing. I don't remember any comments by Andrew or from Andrew on the Lockerbie bombing, but that was a long time ago. 
So the Times has been on this. I've written about it myself today. Savile, now known for his prolific sex offending, wrote a media relations handbook for Charles, who went on to incorporate some of the advice in a memo that was shown to the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. According to letters spanning a period of 20 years, Savile, the former Top of the Pops host, appeared to take on a role as unofficial advisor to the future king. How do we know about this? Well, there's a Netflix documentary, a a brand new one called Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story. That was directed or is directed by Rowan Deacon and she gained access to dozens of letters in which Charles regularly sought guidance from Savile. Now, Rowan Deacon spoke to Times Radio this morning. We can hear some of it now. Um, yeah, well, as part of the, the reason we were looking at this um, is we were trying to explain how Jimmy Savile got away with his crimes. And as part of that, we were looking at a huge amount of archive footage um, of him on television over a period of 50 years. And as part of that, of talking to people, we came across the, um, the letters between him and Prince Charles, which helped give us an understanding of the nature of the friendship that they had, um, which I don't really think we fully understood before. Um, and, and I suppose what was most interesting and why we've included those in the film, which looks really broadly at many reasons um, why, you know, Jimmy Savile wasn't apprehended, bef- you know, before he died, um, is that the relationship was one where, where Prince Charles um, trusted and respected Jimmy Savile. And, and, and I think that's really interesting because I think what we were trying to do is look honestly at our, the British public's relationship with Jimmy Savile in order to try and explain how um, how he got away with it. And I think there's been a temptation um, to sort of say after the, you know, after the revelations, oh, well, you know, I always knew, I always hated him. I always hated the man. That seems to be the common, the common answer we got when we phoned people up. And I think that's unhelpful because I don't think the archive material or footage bore that out. Mm. I didn't like that bit. She said that, we heard lots in the wake of the death of Savile. We heard lots from people who knew or suspected or didn't like him or thought there was something wrong. And she says the archive material doesn't bear that out. Well, I, I don't care too much about the archive material. We know from former BBC presenters and staff and others who met Savile along the journey, people who worked in charities, that they were very uneasy about the things the man was doing and the things the, the, the things the man was saying. We'll come back to that in a minute now. More from this Rowan Deacon who's directed this film, which I'm definitely going to watch. I think that isn't the case. I think he was trusted and respected. And I think that it, we need to look at that in order to understand how perpetrators behave. And how perpet- Did she not see the comments of Johnny Rotten, John Lydon? Has she not seen some of the footage of people talking about Savile when he was alive? No? Do you not heard Louis Theroux say he knew there was something very wrong with Savile? He subsequently made another documentary, Louis Theroux, which is kind of semi-apologetic, really, for not nailing the guy at the time. Mm. How, how this happened? You look back at some of the comments and things at the time which nobody raised an eyebrow at, and now you... It, it, it is just horrible. I'm reading one piece. This is in- They did raise eyebrows, though. 
when Savile was making public comments at the time, people did raise eyebrows, but they weren't listened to. The person posing the question here is Chloe Tilly, who works for Times Radio. This is in Times 2 today. People can read this piece. Um, but it's one from um, a clip from Have I Got News For You? And um, Ian Hislop asks, what do you do in the caravan? This is back in 1999. And he says, anyone I can lay my hands on. And you listen to this. And why at the time were we... Were we not picking up on that? Is it just because he almost groomed the establishment, groomed the British public? Maybe he didn't groom the establishment and the public. Maybe people knew that Savile was untouchable. He was at this for five decades. Isn't it possible that there was a feeling of resignation when it came to Savile, that he was protected maybe? What does the director say to that? Let's hear it. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think the archive footage, I mean, we looked at over 700 hours of footage, which hasn't really, uh, you know, for good reason, it was sort of put away after the revelations came out. And we looked at it sort of responsibly and carefully to, to exactly examine that, exactly examine why when he is, you know, the cliches, he, you know, hiding in plain sight. I think it changes over the years. I think in the 60s and 70s, what's most shocking is that his sort of, what we would now describe as lascivious, creepy, assaulting behaviour on women, which is happening in front of the camera on broadcast footage. What's shocking about that is not that he's doing it because we now know what we know, it's that nobody blinks an eye. It's completely normal. So I think that the social conditions at the time that normalised that kind of behaviour, I mean, I don't mean the things that we found out that he was also doing, but the sort of public lasciviousness and creepiness was was not judged as anything problematic. I think that's really, really interesting to look back at. I think later on in the night, it's interesting because the clip you mentioned is later, I think that the tactic slightly changes because I think that by then that kind of behaviour, he is seen as a bit of a creepy, strange figure. Um, and I think there's a weird psychological game that's going on where he is actually the one who is the source of of the rumours. He's the one saying, you know, the creepy things and suggesting that he's up to no good. And I think it does a kind of double bluff. It's a double bluff with the, with the audience. So maybe, but, but have you considered the possibility that he was saying things and dropping hints? Maybe there are two possibilities. Possibility one, maybe the man wanted to be caught. I've interviewed a few psychoanalysts over the years, particularly during my mainstream radio days, who talked about serial killers and about some of them wanted to be caught, right? Savile isn't a ser- or wasn't a serial killer that we know of, but he was a serial, a serial abuser of men, women and children, or children, women and men, whichever way you want to say it. So he either wanted to be caught or Savile could drop the hints and smirk at people because he knew he was untouchable, maybe. So, so it's quite confusing and people end up thinking, well, he's sort of saying it, so it can't be true. And, and, and I think that that kind of psychological um, a, a game that goes on, it's quite complex, in, in, that we can now look back at in the archive. And we also ask our interviewees who were in the archive to look back at it themselves, which was kind of an interesting experience, really helps us to understand how this happened um, in a way that's illuminating. Illuminating. So you're giving these people, but more importantly, you're giving the heir to the throne a path that he was oblivious. He trusted. You heard what she said at the beginning of that. He trusted Jimmy Savile. He trusted him and he liked him. But it seems the documentary concludes that, well, Charles just didn't know, but how could he not have known? Right? 
Yeah, well, you would say that, wouldn't you, Richie? No, no, I wouldn't. I don't do that. Nobody gets close to something like the royal family without the protective officers, security officers, the police, MI5, whatever, turning those people upside down. I cannot believe that Savile could carry on like this for five decades and that nobody in authority knew what he was doing. I don't believe that. And I mentioned today it was astonishing back in the wake of the death of Savile that Prince Charles wasn't interviewed by the police. Now, look, when I said it was astonishing, that was tongue-in-cheek. I'm not naive. I didn't expect them to interview Charles, but I would have hoped at the time that people who didn't know as much as you and I know, the great unwashed, that they would have been astounded that Charles wasn't invited for a cup of tea by the Met Police to discuss his 20-plus year relationship with the record-breaking paedophile the most famous DJ and television presenter in the country for a long time. How did he carry out those crimes with impunity? And I pose the question, did he have immunity? Was he part of something bigger, maybe? Mountbatten, I don't know. Your opinions, please, richieallen.co.uk. When I say I don't know, I don't know. These are hypotheticals. These are hypotheticals. Pathetic hypotheticals. That's what they are. They are pathetic hypotheticals. You are with the Richie Allen Show. It's 28 minutes past the hour. Comments, please, to richieallen.co.uk. And uh, I will be reading them out as I go along, of course. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at richieallen.co.uk. Now, eco-warriors and climate change is back in the news. They sweep their mess under the carpet for our generation to clean up and solve. How dare you! You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. How dare you? How dare you? It never gets old. Never gets old. Activists who um, want to disrupt the supply of petrol to uh, south-east England have been occupying an oil terminal today. It's one of the busiest oil terminals in the south-east. This is the Just Stop Oil campaign. Young people who are convinced that we're going to hell in a flaming handcart as the planet continues to warm because of our industrial activities. That would be man's and women's industrial activities. So these little warriors, they used telescopic ladders, very, very good, to climb over the fence at Navigator Oil Terminal, that's in Essex. They did it around three o'clock this morning when everybody was in bed. (laughs) They trekked along the banks of the Thames to reach the rear of this place, this Navigator Oil Terminal. They used sleeping mats to avoid being impaled on the spiked fence posts. Heaven forbid one of the little bollockses unmanned himself on the spiked fence posts. That would have been terrible, wouldn't it? If one of these little Julians, they're all Julian, aren't they? They're all Ruperts and Julians, these little fuckers. (laughs) With their little plummy accents that want to save us from ourselves. 
It's a shame Rupert didn't unman himself on the spiked fence. I don't mean that. I genuinely don't mean that. I say it in jest. I don't want anybody to get hurt. So they sprinted through Navigator Oil Terminal. They got to the loading bay where the fuel tankers are ready to be filled to to then be delivered to petrol stations right across the southeast. And then they used lock-on devices and they used super glue to basically be a big old nuisance and prevent the lorries and the petrol getting out of the terminal. Now, the media were all over this. Jeremy Vine spoke to young Nathan. Yeah, it's Julian, Rupert or Nathan. Vine asked young Nathan, the young warrior, what about those who might need the oil, you know, to get around, like, you know, going to visit sick people and, I don't know, ambulances and stuff. What did Nathan say? Have you seriously just asked me, am I doing something wrong when I'm fighting for my future? I'm fighting for the millions of people all across the world right now who are living in drought, living in famine. He's fighting for you and me. Because of criminal inaction on the climate emergency. So if there's a hospital that needs the oil that's coming from your terminal and they don't get it, what should they do, just power off? Good question, Jezza. What did young Nathan say? Don't pretend you care about the NHS now, Jeremy. Where... <laughs> don't pretend you care about the NHS, Jeremy, you bastard. Don't pretend you care about the NHS now, Jeremy. Where were you when the nurses were denied a pay rise? Where were you when nurses didn't get PPE during COVID? Where was Jeremy when the nurses didn't get a pay rise? Where was Jeremy when the nurses didn't get PPE during COVID? Now, I loathe Jeremy Vine. I despise him. But the truth is the truth. Jeremy Vine on BBC Radio 2 reported on the nurses asking for a pay rise. He interviewed union bosses who said the nurses should get a pay rise. And I'm pretty sure at least a thousand times during the scandemic, Jeremy Vine interviewed people who complained that nurses on the front line put their lives on the line for you and me without the proper PPE. So little Nathan is wrong. Don't pretend you care now. I think that's called whataboutery, isn't it? Where I ask you a question and you yeah. swerve. No, it's not, Jeremy. It's an ad hominem attack on you. It's not whataboutery. He's not answering your question about ambulances need oil, don't they, young man? He's deflecting by saying that you're a fecker who doesn't give a shite about the NHS. Whataboutery, is it? What it's called is you picking a narrative that suits what your producer is telling you to say. Last year... The International Energy Agency told us we have no new fossil fuel projects if we are serious about the climate crisis. What is an unimaginable catastrophe? And our government plans to plough ahead with 40 of them. This year, released, they still plan to approve 40 of them. That is genocide. So don't talk to me about pretending to care about but ordinary it's not, people. It's this fecker now, Nathan, is talking to Vine... Using his camera phone, he's glued inside some pipe somewhere. (laughs) Don't talk to me about the NHS. We're in a climate crisis. Millions of people are going to die. It's genocide. Absolutely not genocide, is it? My studio guest, Jeff, is coming in. This is Jeff, the studio guest. Not genocide. It's absolutely not genocide. Do you know what? At the point, the simplicity of this just stop oil. At a time where we're trying to deal with something that's happening uh, in Eastern Europe, and you have the absolute gall to use the word 
genocide, about something which powers, yes, things are damaging to the environment, but as Jeremy says, uh, hospitals, ambulances, how, I just can't believe that you would use the word genocide at this point in time. Uh, I would suggest you go and tell that to the people in Ecuador who can't grow food because there is oil seeping into the land that they live on. Bullshit. I suggest you go and tell that to the president of Barbados who spoke at COP26 and said, within years, we are going to see their islands underwater. Within years, we're going to see Barbados underwater. Yeah, of course we are. They will not exist anymore. I would love to see you go and tell... I wouldn't miss Barbados anyway, would you? Dear listener, I don't know about you. No Those one is denying that, that there are net effects. Are ripped apart. There, no one is denying that there are net effects to these things, but, but for you to equivocate directly between one of the worst things that can happen globally between humans, genocide, I just think that if you've got this cause right, you lose people. You lose people when you use language like that. If you want to change public opinion, then perhaps don't use words like that. Yeah, perhaps. So Nathan was chained to some sort of... He was kind of half upside down in some lorry or something, or some tanker. A little bit further away, not too much further away, was Hannah. Hannah was chained to an oil pipe. She posted her own video online, and it was picked up by Talk Radio. This is now a classic example of religious mania. Listen to 23-year-old Hannah. Boris Johnson is signing the death sentence of our future. Um, He's a at the moment subsidising £25 million a day of taxpayer money into new oil sites while we're in the biggest cost of living crisis. Every drop of new oil is signing the death sentence of children in the global south. Every drop of new oil is signing a death sentence of children in the global south. And the children that I want to have one day. And the children she wants to have one day. The death sentence for those children. Every drop of oil. My message is that, that they can take away my liberty. They can take away her liberty. They can take away my freedom. They can take her freedom. You locked yourself to a pipe, you daft bint. They can choose to ignore the alarm we are sounding on the climate crisis. They can choose to ignore the alarm we're sounding on the climate crisis. This, is, this better be good. But they cannot take away our courage. But they can't take away your courage. No. They can't take away my courage. It's getting very emotional. They can't take away my courage. They just can't take away her courage. To put my body on the line. Put her body on the line. For every young person who has been betrayed by our government, for every young person in the global south who is dying from extreme heat. Who's dying in the, in the global south from extreme heat? Who? Drought and famine for every young person in the UK who's freezing to death in fuel poverty and having to choose between heating and eating. Yes, you daft cow. It's not going to get much better if you're stopping oil getting to its destination. You silly little muppet. Give over. So they can take our liberty. They can, it's back to, back to, they can take our liberty. But they won't take my courage to say... They won't take our courage. No to new oil and gas. We're not going to die quietly. Not going to die quietly. <laughs> and... She's crying now. I plead you to not be a bystander, to join us. You too can glue yourself to a pipe and make a video. In saying no new oil. No new oil. No one must be left behind. No one must be left behind.
be the Lord Jesus, huh? That was young Hannah there. She's a bit mad, is Hannah. And I must qualify that by saying psychological warfare, I think anyway, I don't know what you think, but please tell me, has been waged on young people. She believes it. There's a, a still image of her on the website, richieallen.co.uk, and a picture does paint a, t- a thousand words sometimes. They've absolutely battered young people. Oh, I'm not young anymore, it kills me. Um, with this crap, and they believe it. It's evangelical in its fervour. It's madness. You'd ask Hannah, you know, how much CO2 is in the atmosphere, she couldn't tell you. Of the CO2 in the atmosphere, how much of it is put there by man, she couldn't tell you that either. And yet they believe it. They've been terrorised, God loved them, and they've been radicalised. This is the Richie Allen Show, I promise you, when I come back from this I'm reading your comments, and then you and I will talk a little bit about Ukraine. This is Haircut 100. There's an irony there somewhere, as I have no hair. He's got no hair, but you don't care. The BBG on the Richie Allen Show. This is Fantastic Day. Haircut 100 and Fantastic Day. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. From the magnificent city of Salford. Patrick says these uh, laughs out loud, two sides of an argument, both discussing and being obsessed by the wrong things and offering the wrong solutions. God help us all. I think he is either referring to Vine and young Nathan or Nathan and Hannah. Pete in Salford says these climate zealots speak the truth when they get on air and accuse the media of having an agenda. They do. There's a pretense at a pushback from presenters, but yet they are allowed on again and again. If we made a similar point about the media having an agenda about COVID or Ukraine, we would be cut off, says Pete. It's pure theatre. They are allowed on as useful idiots to progress the climate agenda. The arguments from the hosts are just to put up a show that the establishment disapproves. When in fact it doesn't. It loves it, says Pete. Thank you, Pete. Interesting points. Caroline says, this takes me back. She says, haircut 100. Chris says, who is brainwashing these poor sods? Now, if they were protesting this stupid, destructive New World Order lockdowns, well, for a start, they wouldn't be on the telly. My sister was telling me that her 19-year-old daughter has been in tears over the last year or so over this climate emergency stuff, says Chris. Pandora says, extinction plebeians insulate Britain and stop oil, or just stop oil, are fake protests from Soros-style funding, as that all aids the whole agenda. It's a total psyop, and they have no idea they are aiding their own trap. Amy says, I would bet all the money in the world these morons live with their parents and don't have to worry about heating their homes or anything else. Good God, says Amy. (laughs) Alan says, I'm no geologist, but I'm sure the Caribbean islands or the Caribbean islands are some of the newest in a geological sense. So doesn't it make sense then the area is like the rest of the planet, changing naturally? Nelly liked that and said, spot on, Alan. Spot on, dear boy. Banjo said, I wouldn't miss Necker Island. <laughs> Martin says, I bet these twats all have phones made of plastic which oil went to produce and delivered to the shops or to their homes when they bought them. 
Hypocrite, says Martin. Jimmy says, I honestly believe the horror that Savile and monsters like that inflict on the people is allowed and indeed protected by the elite. What other explanation is there? Fear of the young being taken and abused has been used for millennia to terrify the people. It's all in the stories we tell our kids they're evil. Lucy says in tapes that Diana made with that voice coach, she mentioned that her sex life with Charles was strange, odd and not very frequent, probably due to him being busy elsewhere with Camilla and others, I suspect, allegedly, says Lucy. Well, he definitely has a fondness for Camilla, doesn't he? Maybe, I don't know. Anto says, extension, bullshit, Richie. Craig says, sleeping mats and telescopic ladders and super glue. From what and how do these kids think those things are made? Correct. And how does Nathan think PPE is made and how do they think it is transported? That's very good. It is transported in a big massive tanker from China, which takes a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, to get to the UK. At one time, the Caribbean was a larger landmass that succumbed to rising sea levels that had nothing to do with human activity. As for Hannah, he says he's written a long piece on that. Thanks, Craig. Interesting stuff there. Ewan says, I noticed quite a few petrol stations were out of diesel and the higher grade fuels last week. Is this latest fuel protest prearranged? Might be. Faisal says, funny how long, uh, funny how many decades they've been saying that the Maldives would be underwater by now and for some reason they, they've to Barbados. And Emir, um, who says he's Ukrainian, has left another comment on the website, but I'm not going to be reading out any more comments from Emir. I'm sorry, Amir, but I've invited you on the programme and you lost your cojones. So no, pal, I won't be reading out any more of your comments. I would suggest that you actually listen to the programme. Really listen to it. Listen to how balanced I am when talking about Ukraine and Russia and the criticisms I've levelled at Russia and at the Russian army for invading Ukraine. Listen, clean out your ears, get them waxed or get some cotton buds. Johnson & Johnson do them, packets of 100. They're not that expensive, but a lot of oil went into making them. Clean out your ears and listen to what I say. All right, good man. Come on the programme or fuck off. That's what I say and I say it loudly. Dan says Charles knew and most likely joined him. Well, we don't know that, Dan. A lot of people have said that over the years. Uh, celebrity types used to go up to Scotland to Alistair Crowley's old house, the same house Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page bought. Um, and then he goes on to say, Charles was once documented saying to Savile, enjoy the ladies before Savile visited this home. Hmm. The media twisted that, says Dan, and claimed he meant ladies as in women. But uh, in Scotland, ladies are young boys. No, they're not. Laddies might be, but not ladies. So if Charles said ladies, he probably meant ladies. Interesting. Good stuff. Thanks for the messages. Uh, Joan says, hey, Richie and gang, what is to stop the media conglomerates from paying off any nutter to say whatever they want in order to take down anyone telling the truth? Scary stuff, says Joan. It's 11 minutes to the top of the hour. You're with the Richie Allen Show, live from Salford. Where else? With me, Richie Allen. A couple of quick ones. You might have seen that Stirling University decided to replace Jane Austen on a literary course there to decolonise the curriculum. They've replaced Austin's books with those of Toni Morrison, who's a black woman who has written about the African-American experience. I've written about that 
on the website today. There was a time, was there a time? Maybe there was never a time. Maybe there never was when universities were learning institutions, institutions of higher learning. Maybe not, maybe never. Maybe I'm being fanciful in thinking there was a time when you learned at university. I don't know. Were we always programmed? Yeah. We would have laughed at this, of course. When I was at uni, we would have laughed at the notion that you need to decolonise the curriculum. We must get rid of Austin. I first was introduced to Jane Austen. It was torture for me when I was 14 years old in third year at St. Paul's Community College in Waterford doing my intermediate certificate. We had to read and understand Pride and Prejudice. Excruciatingly boring. Horrible. Mr. Wickham, Mr. Darcy and all of that bollocks. Horrible for a 14-year-old boy. But later on we did Bronte. At, at leaving cert level we did Wuthering Heights by Bronte. Of course, that was mildly more interesting to me. Uh, Twitter is looking into an edit button. Elon Musk has become Twitter's largest shareholder, you probably know. He canvassed his own followers to ask them, did they, did, did they think that an edit feature was a good thing? They came back to him and said, yeah, it's going to be great. Twitter says that has nothing to do with our decision to look into an edit button. Most people think that the edit button might be useful if you have posted a tweet and then you look at it and realise that a four-year-old could have, you know, could have performed a better job, could have written it with better spelling, better grammar, you know. But I would believe, and maybe you would agree, that the edit feature would be for something a bit more sinister, you know. But anyway, that's uh, interesting enough, I suppose. So to Ukraine then, the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine has urged residents of the eastern regions of the country to evacuate Kharkiv, Luhansk and Donetsk. Right, get out. The Deputy Prime Minister is saying, this is Irina Verashuk. She's saying get out because uh, pretty soon you will be under fire and you will face the threat of death. Also today, the United States has imposed sanctions on Vladimir Putin's daughters. His two daughters, they are adults. And the US sanctions will target Russian banks. This is about the allegations of Russian war crimes in Ukraine, in Bucha, right? The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said the killing of civilians in the town of Bucha and other events in Ukraine do not look far short of genocide. You can hear a very brief clip of Johnson saying that very thing earlier today. When you look at what's happening in uh, in Bucha, the, with the, the, the revelations that we're seeing from uh, what Putin has done in, in Ukraine, which, you know, doesn't look far short of genocide uh, to me, it is no wonder that people are responding in the way that they are. Uh, and I have no doubt that uh, the international community, uh, Britain very much uh, in the front rank, uh, will be moving again uh, in lockstep to impose more sanctions and, and more penalties on, on Vladimir Putin's regime. In lockstep, we heard that term quite a lot in the last couple of years, didn't we? 25 women and girls have claimed they were raped by Russian forces in Bucha. That's according to the BBC. The BBC says it got its information from a senior Ukrainian official. The UK and the European Union are uh, preparing further sanctions on Russia. They, the sanctions will focus on the oil and gas industries. This is journalism. 
And for the seemingly one and only one Ukrainian listening to this programme, listen up and listen good. I don't know that 25 women and girls were not raped by Russian forces. It's feasible. I'll say for the 500th time in the last four weeks, soldiers do unspeakable things in theatre, on the battlefield. Unspeakable things. There are no good guys. Dreadful things. What happened in Bucha, what is claimed to have happened in Bucha, I have never said it didn't happen. I have criticised the media of the West for taking these stories from so-called Ukrainian officials and rinsing them and repeating them without asking for a shred of evidence. That's my gripe. I haven't said this stuff hasn't happened. I condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I've read out comments from the one and only Ukrainian listener when they've come in. Can't do any more than that. This is journalism. Got to report the other side of it. Because the legacy media isn't doing that. It is reporting horror stories every half an hour without offering a shred of evidence to support the claims. The Russians were rolling over people in tanks for pleasure, a Ukrainian official told the BBC. The BBC printed it and it broadcasted on its channels. That isn't journalism. That's propaganda. But by saying that, I'm not saying it didn't happen. Do you understand that? Ukrainian people, if you're listening. Right, okay. Back to the allegations, re Pucha. Jackson Hinkle is a podcaster. Never heard of him until today. He interviewed a guy called Douglas McGregor, a US Army colonel retired, and Donald Trump's pent- a senior advisor to Donald Trump. He worked at the Pentagon to Douglas McGregor. So this guy is senior. His opinion is worth listening to. He's a former US Army colonel and he was an advisor to Trump at the Pentagon. He's measured, is this guy, and he's interesting. You will hear the host first, guy called Jackson Hinkle. Then you will hear Douglas McGregor. Let's listen. Do you think it would make sense for the Russian military who spent a month uh, occupying that city, living, you know, in relative peace with the civilians there to kill four, 410 civilians on the last day as they leave the city? Well, no, I, I don't. Uh, and I think experience in military affairs suggests that if you do that sort of thing, all you do is stiffen resistance against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the bodies don't disappear. The act persists. It has a bad odor. It doesn't go away. And it's hard for me to believe that this was a deliberate act by the Russian military. That said, it's not impossible. We did things in Vietnam that were terrible. Uh, We know about some of them. We don't know about all of them. Again, I looked at both sides of this, and I couldn't come away with a certain conclusion one way or the other. There were things that didn't make a lot of sense. A lot of these people had this white armband tied around them. The white armband was a signal to the Russian army that, look, I'm not part of the Ukrainian army. I don't support it. Effectively, I'm not in the war. And all of a sudden, large numbers of those people are dead. We do know that Ukrainian forces have killed people like that elsewhere. They've assassinated mayors. People have disappeared and so forth. Whenever you have such unanimity in the American and Western media and you have such brilliant timing, such that a piece of news comes out, like what you mentioned earlier in uh, that's happened in Bucha, 
it comes out and uh, there's this no enormous explosion. It's almost volcanic of hate and criticism and stories supporting all of this against the Russians that bursts on the scene almost immediately, all at roughly the same time. And all of the retired general officers come on and with no exception, say virtually all the same thing. And when that happens, I step back and I'm extremely suspicious and very skeptical because I've seen this before. I saw it in the run-up to the Iraq war. We saw it in Iraq, we saw it in Libya, we saw it elsewhere. It doesn't mean that Russian soldiers didn't do unspeakable things to people in Bucha. It doesn't. What it means is you've got to take with a large pinch of salt allegations made against Russia by a, an authoritarian president in Vladimir Zelensky and particularly Western governments who are committing unspeakable crimes in Yemen as we speak. You've got to take it with a pinch of salt. It isn't the same as saying it hasn't happened. Spoke about this, talked about this with Ryan Christian yesterday on this programme. It was a very interesting conversation. He's like me, won't come down on any side. But you have to hear the other side of these allegations. You have to. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point in life? So we believe everything that comes out of the world of Volodymyr Zelensky, a man who's uh, sought to shut down media organisations who've criticised him. This is before the invasion of Ukraine. A man who, who has sought to ban, to outlaw politicians, opposition politicians. This guy is as authoritarian as the Chinese. That's not an opinion, that's a fact. More on that um, with... Um, Robert Inlakesh in hour two. It's coming up for a minute to the top of the hour. You're with the Richie Allen Show. It is the 6th of April, 2022. More to talk about now, though. Hey, speaking of Johnson, let's stay with him. He was at care facilities today on the day that a rise in national insurance came into force. You know, people who get paid weekly and people who get paid monthly, monthly through their company okay, P-A-Y-E, workers, pay-as-you-earn workers, they're going to see an increase in their tax, their national insurance, they're going to see a decrease in their take-home pay. The claim is that the added money will go straight to social care. Johnson, anyway, out there talking about this today, he got into men competing in women's sports, which has been all the rage lately. I don't think that... Uh biological males should be competing in female sporting events. And, and, and maybe, I'm, maybe that's a controversial thing to see, but I just, it just seems to me to be sensible. And uh, I also happen to think that um, women should have spaces wh which are, whether it's in, in, in hospitals or prisons or change rooms or wherever, which are, are dedicated to, to, uh, to women. That's as far as my thinking has developed on this, on this issue. Uh, now, if that puts me in conflict with, um, you know, some others, then we've we got to work it all out. That doesn't mean that I'm not immensely sympathetic to people who want to, uh, to change gender, uh, to transition, uh, and, and it's vital that we give people the maximum possible love and support uh, in, in making those decisions. But they are, these are complex issues, and 
I don't think they can be solved with, uh, you know, a, a one swift, easy piece of, of legislation. They're, they're, they've taken a, they, they, it takes a lot of thought to get this right. A lot of thought to get this right, said Boris Johnson. Lots of your comments coming in. Scaramouche says it's a distraction. Uh, US, UK, French, German, Azov advisors trapped in Mari- Mariupol, Mariupol, suicide helicopter missions to get them out not working. Mate, you might think about how you construct your sentences just a little bit. <laughs> I haven't a clue what you're saying there. If you want to try again, I'll give you another go and I will read it out. Bod says, newfound respect, new respect for you, Richie. Newfound. You didn't respect me before. That's okay. You are truly the only independent radio show. Thank you. I am, but that's not a good thing, is it? Daz says, Richie, I would pay good money to see the book, to see the look, to see the look on the eco-wingnuts' faces when somebody tells them that David Icke was a spokesman for the Green Party. Also, please, can you add Bowl of Flies by Leatherface to your playlist? As they referenced David in a very prophetic way. That song is from the early 90s, by the way. What a great name. Thanks, Tazaragi. Appreciate that. Hi to James. Hi to David Keane. How you doing, David? Keep the comments coming in. It is richieallen.co.uk. My name is Richie Allen. And as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. The BBC has run a photograph of one of Vladimir Putin's daughters. I think that's a little bit cheeky. Maybe it isn't. They've run plenty of photographs of Obama's daughters, haven't they? And Biden's family and and Bill Clinton's daughter and Hillary's daughter, Chelsea Clinton. But this is the story that the United States is imposing sanctions on Vladimir Putin's daughters and also relatives of Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Sanctions and sanctions. They're hoping to, to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until such time, I suppose, as Russian people turn on the Kremlin. They turn their gazes towards the Kremlin and say, enough is enough. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. Just when we thought we were getting out of the COVID, they dragged us back in. No, no, we knew we were never getting out of the COVID nonsense. Robert Inlakesh will be our guest shortly. <clears throat> our guest, my guest, our guest. Really looking forward to catching up with him. We'll talk about Palestine. One of those things, you know, because of the focus on the scandemic from March 2020 all the way through 2020, 2021, things like Palestine and the, the, the plight of the indigenous people of Palestine, the brutal occupation of Israel, the crimes associated with that, it's one of those that kind of went on the back burner a little bit. I'm pretty sure at least once in the last two years we did some Israel, I'm sure we did, but not very much. So we'll get into that. They're still talking about salmonella in Kinder Eggs. Might have mentioned that briefly yesterday because it kind of read like an April Fool's Day joke. But this is kind of public service broadcasting. You're being advised by the Food Standards Agency not to eat 20 grams or three-pack eggs with best before dates between July 11th and October 7th, 2022. So if you're in a shop and you fancy a Kinder Egg or some Kinder Chocolate, Kinder Chocolate Eggs, you better have a look at the dates. And if the best before dates are between July 11th and October 7th, you really should put it back on the shelf and let somebody else die. Or 
mention it in passing to the shopkeeper. Shopkeep, shopkeep, how are you doing? And pass it over to the old shopkeeper there. Ferrero makes Kinder Chocolates these days, says it's taking the precautionary decision to voluntarily extend the recall to these products in the UK and Ireland. Kinder eggs, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, it's Kinder Surprise, isn't it? It's where you pull open the, the egg, it comes into the egg splits in half and there's a little plastic toy in there and you put it together and all of that jazz. Bit of public service broadcasting. The time is coming up for six minutes past the hour. A tune and then Robert Inlikesh. This is your Richie Allen Show. Speaking of cheesy 80s numbers, this is an incredibly funny cover of The Beatles' I Saw Her Standing There by Tiffany of I Think You're I Think We're Alone fame. This is Tiffany, remember? Tiffany. Yeah, Robert is there. I think he's got a new Skype account, so we're just sorting that out. I'll leave it to him momentarily. I think we're on the right one, are we? Oh, maybe no, no, he's got a new one. Ah, you see. Do you know what I might just do? I've done it before. <laughs> I'll try and talk to you and type at the same time. Multitasking, you see. Multitasking is all the rage when you're an independent content creator. I don't know if you ever heard that, but it's true. So let's see, can we do that? Um, I will be reading more of your comments as we go along. So keep them coming into richieallen.co.uk where it says comment live. And I've just found him on his new Skype account, BGPers. I tell you, I don't need any producers. I don't need any editors. Oh, God, no. I do. I need loads of them. But I'm never going to get them. Shall we say hello to Robert? It's been such a long time. It's been a very long time. What's going on there? Ah, I see. It's telling me that... Oh, Skype has changed. It's updated itself and all of that, right? Um, you, of course, probably know who Robert is. He is a political analyst, a documentary filmmaker and journalist. He's um, most often based in the UK, but he has lived in the occupied Palestinian territories. In fact, when we first met him on this programme some years ago, he broadcast to us from, uh, from, from Gaza, or maybe not Gaza, but just outside Gaza. He's uh, the director of the film Steel of the Century, Trump's Palestine-Israel Catastrophe, which is an excellent film. You can find him on Twitter. He is uh, His handle is Palestine 47 But if you look for Robert Inlakesh, you'll find him immediately. Robert, you're very welcome back to this parish. How are you? Good to be with you. Great. Thank you for having me, Richie. Great to have you on. Great op, great op-ed. Uh, for RT.com a couple of weeks ago, which jogged me and reminded me that I should get in touch with you. We'll talk a little bit about that situation, but let's kick off with this. The COVID thing, programmes like this have been, have been preoccupied with that for most of the last two years and a month or around two years. And it occurred to me that during that time we were focusing on that. I don't mean you, I mean me and others like me. Uh, while we were doing that, um, the situation of Palestinian people, the indigenous people of Palestine, hasn't improved, that their struggles were going on and on and on. But the independent media, which is probably the, the only media that ever shone a spotlight on Palestine, was busy covering something else. Do you think that has been felt in Palestine? 
the absence of media certainly sometimes can have its impact. But I think the fact that uh, the war on Gaza and uh, the what was pegged as the 11-day war last May uh, really shone a light on the Palestinian cause for a brief moment uh, all around the world. So I think that um, managed to push the Palestinian cause for just a moment into sort of the mainstream spotlight, I think, because the Israelis weren't prepared for that. Um, the propaganda p- campaign was not prepared for that. So it's sort of became something uh, of a mainstream issue for a bit. Um, And now it seems like it's just faded into the darkness. This is despite the fact that we've got Human Rights Watch, the year before B'Tselem, Israel's top human rights organization, and just this year, Amnesty International. This means there's consensus amongst the human rights organizations that Israel is an apartheid regime. Um, And right now, um, there's complete silence as a very similar situation is building up to what we saw last year uh, with the storming of Mesh Al-Aqsa by settlers and Israeli occupation forces. Now we see very similar acts as was taking place early during Ramadan last year, which eventually led to the war. Um, And today, Netanyahu, uh, the leader of the opposition, is going to be attending a far-right settler march Uh, in Jerusalem, which in of itself, if this goes out of hand, could look very similar or emulate, perhaps he wants to do this at some point, uh, Ariel Sharon uh, storming Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, as the opposition at the time. Um, So things are getting very uh, dangerous, uh, heating up a lot. And I think that the fact that the Palestinian people haven't had the coverage in the time of day um, especially lately as the Arab regimes have normalized ties with Israel, uh, even talks about a two-state solution are not there anymore. There's no engagement. Um, have driven Palestinians to commit desperate acts, uh, as we saw during the early 2000s, uh, during the, uh, the, the Second Intifada. So I, I think there has been an, an aspect of, yes, it has affected, but I think the situation on the ground it is what has driven Palestinians uh, to the armed struggle again um, and what has put uh, this uh, situation today basically together. Um, and there'll be lambs to the slaughter, of course, tragically. I saw some very disturbing video today, and it's been verified, of Palestinians trying to move from one place to another because it's Ramadan and IDF soldiers beating the absolute crap out of them, including young women. I don't know why it disturbs me even more, but it does. I'll be called sexist, maybe I am sexist. But when you see women doing it, you know, you think women will have the maternal about them, they'll have something in them. Kicking people, defenceless people when when they're on the ground, and it brings it all back. You know, I've been covering the issue for many, many, many years, speaking to people like you, trying to to shine a light on it. And then I think sometimes... You know, while this programme has a large audience, it does, and that's not to brag, the, the majority or all of them are aware of this. They're aware it goes on. You know, and are we reaching anybody really? You know, I like to think that um, that we are. Robert Inlakesh is our guest. We'll stay with this because it's so hugely important. I read somewhere today that the coalition is in danger of collapsing and that there's a strong possibility that serial criminal, lunatic... And mass murderer, and I, I'm not going to pretend to be objective here, 
Benjamin Netanyahu could very well be positioning himself to be Prime Minister again, and that's not far-fetched. Is, is that how you understand it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I said this, I thought he'd come back earlier, to be fair, um, that he would, you know, uh, pull some strings to get back in uh, power. But it seems that he's doing that at this point. And like I mentioned, him attending these uh, far right settler rallies, um, which are meant both to rally Israelis against the current uh, government, uh, which really now it, it doesn't have the uh really any legitimacy anymore. I mean, this is a government as well that we have to remember is formed of people like Naftali Bennett, who is an extreme right winger. And then you have somebody like, for instance, uh, Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz. And these are not people that are on the same page as Naftali Bennett, who thinks that God gave him the West Bank and it's called Judea and Samaria to him. Um, they're very much on different pages. Uh, they view, for instance, uh, communicating with Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority um, as two different things. Naftali Bennett thinks it's traitorous uh, to the Israeli cause, whereas Yair Lapid um, and uh, Benny Gantz, for instance, two big figures which you know came together to form this coalition, uh, would like to work with Mahmoud Abbas, um, maybe not for a two-state solution, definitely not, uh, but at least work with him and talk to him um, because they understand that the Palestinian Authority and its security apparatus in the West Bank is actually integral uh, to Israeli security. Um, but there's the right-wingers don't even see it in that way anymore. It's very much emotional, um, and very extreme. And the problem now is that all of these uh, Israeli politicians who came together to form this uh, coalition will now basically, if they are, uh, this government is, is done with, their political careers may be over. Um, and Netanyahu, this may be a huge win for him if he is able to pressure this government to collapse and why this is so incredibly dangerous is because Netanyahu last year, around this time, uh, during Ramadan, was allowing for the situation to boil with the Palestinians, to grow, uh, to escalate, to get worse and worse, um, to the point where it went to a war, one that he could not handle and, and politically he didn't come off very well from it. But if he is going to try and push that on now and feed the fire now and make things worse in order to bring Israel to the point of a war with Gaza, um, that may be a good strategy for him to collapse the current government and for him to take power. So we may see him go that far. Um, and there's lots of agitators uh, who are there who are behind Netanyahu and want this to happen. So it's a very dangerous uh, circumstance which we're in right now. We talk about Ukraine and Russia. We talk about Libya in 2010, 2011. And I often talk with guests about how the people of any given country have no interest in war and murder and displacing people and stealing their homes and dropping bombs. We don't. The great majority of any people want to live in peace and want to you know, be able to go to work earn enough money to keep a roof over their heads, raise their children, and maybe get a couple of holidays a year. I like to think that Israeli men and women are no different to men and women in Ireland and in England. Now, I know 
that there's a certain amount of indoctrination that goes on in Israeli primary schools, and that isn't helpful. But I'd like to think that, just as the Russian people are sick to death of what's happening, I would like to think many of them are sick to death of what's happening in Ukraine. I'd like to think the Israelis, or at least a great deal of them, you know, are saying, not in our name, we don't want this, we don't want Gaza to be destroyed every couple of years and hundreds of children blown to pieces. Now, you've been there. What's your sense of how Israelis feel about all of this? Well, that's a, a strange thing. Obviously, I can't speak on behalf of every single Israeli. Yeah. But um, if you are going to ask Israelis who are honest, who uh, are to the left, and it's normally people who are on the left who are actually sympathetic to Palestinian human rights. I don't know of anyone on the right that is. Um, but the majority of Israelis are right wing. Um, the younger generations have been pushed even further to the right. Um, and really what's been bred there is this form of ultranationalism. Um, and if you're going to ask Israelis questions about any other issues, um, many Israelis might actually answer in ways which uh, might shock you on different uh, issues. They might, for instance, there's many Israelis that think that it's horrible that uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine and that Ukrainian people are suffering and they think that, that the war is bad in that way. And also many Israelis want to live lives like they're, you know, in a European country, that, uh, you know, like they're living in Britain or France or Germany or the United States. They would like to live like that, that style of life inside Israel. Um, so they want that, but at the same time, they don't want to give Palestinians their rights. And, you know, the large majority of them do support the military campaigns. Uh, and that comes down to uh, indoctrination, racism. There's a number of different uh, things we could analyze about the Israeli society because it's not just one group. I mean, we talk about Jewish Israelis, uh, but within Jewish Israelis, these are people from all over the world. So they yeah. have very different circumstances that they were brought up or came from different backgrounds. Uh, the propaganda has been fed to them in different ways. Um, and, and people have a range and variety of different opinions and way they view this. I mean, the Israeli government reflects that. The fact that there is a coalition every single time. There's never one party which, is, which just wins out. And Great there's point. always a coalition government. Great point. Um, so even on the right, where you've got these right-wing religious people, uh, let's say, like, uh, for instance, you've got people like Naftali Bennett, who's religious. Uh, then you have someone like a Victor Lieberman, who's a right-wing with the same sort of caliber. They agree on many things, but then he's irreligious. So it, it's very complex the way they think, but overwhelmingly they do support the action against the Palestinians. They do support having the apartheid rule there. They do support having the military uh, inside the West Bank and think the West Bank is an integral part of Israel. Um, so they believe in those things, but it's like you have to sort of rationalize it. Nobody thinks they're a horrible person. Nobody yeah. goes around thinking they're evil. Um, but uh, they do support evil things. And unfortunately, a lot of countries at war, their populations support war. I mean, all the polls when it came to the Iraq war said that it was around 67% of the American public when the war started on the first day, which supported the war, roughly. Some had it even higher. Um, so, and Russian support right now uh, for their government is above uh, 70% by all the polls that I've seen. What do we think, Robert, um, when, when, you, when you think of the 67% support in America for the Iraq war 
and the very high level of support in Russia, do, do we just exclusively put that down to the media, do we, in those countries? I mean, it would. It can be the media. Yeah. It can be the propaganda campaigns. I mean, in the case of Russia, Russians would feel solidarity, especially with the likes of people in the Donbass and ethnic Russians inside of the Ukraine. Um, so Russia is a slightly different issue. Russians are very close to this issue, um, and it's very, very. Uh, it's a different issue for Russians. Um, but in terms of what happens with NATO's wars of aggression. I'd put that primarily down to the media. I mean, most of these people can't point out Ukraine on a map right now, but they want yeah. to send Ukraine weapons and enter World War Three. Most of these people couldn't point to Iraq on a map, or they know nothing about the Iraqis or uh, Afghanistan or uh, Syria, um, yet they wanted to go there and take out their government. Uh, <laughs> I know, and, it's amazing uh, to me. Drop bombs on the country. Amazing to me, and change your... Your, your Twitter holding image to the yellow and blue Ukrainian flag and, you know, sign up to hosting Ukrainian refugees. I mean, that's a noble thing, I suppose. But, yeah, the lack of education is startling. On, on Israel, this is not um, me trying to be balanced. This is my honest-to-God opinion. The, the Jewish people I know in England... Um, ben Gelbloom, who produced a television show that I presented in London, wonderful guy, a great um, producer, great journalist. Ben is Jewish and his wife. And they detest and loathe what the State of Israel has done historically, and they really mean it. And they will do their bit, you know, they will, they, they will fund certain campaigns when they can, and they mean that. And I have Jewish friends in Manchester who would have attended protests, genuine protests in Manchester against the Israeli occupation. I think what united those Jewish people, this is just my opinion, is also as much as much an anger at what the Israeli government does, also a kind of a sense of resignation about it. You know, that, well, what, what really more can I do as a Jewish person living in England, as an English Jewish person, I'm English first, of course, and and, and and for some of them Jewish second. Do you get that when you travel around the world? You know, you, you spend a lot of your time in London. Jewish people will genuinely oppose it and be just as outraged as you and I. Operation, you know, um, uh, what was it called? Protective Edge and all that crap, which is basically genocide. Just try and bomb Palestinians to smithereens. They hate it, but are resigned to, well, what the bloody hell can I do about it? Do you get that? Uh, everywhere I go. I mean, I travel <laughs> all over the world. I mean, I travel all the time. So everywhere I go and when, wherever I attend Palestine events, there's Jewish people, not only there, but normally organizing it. Uh, and they're normally, you know, really involved in helping out. Um, pretty much everywhere I go, that if I do anything activism-based in terms of I go and report on things or I go and see what's happening in these scenes and I want to get to know people and what's happening there in these communities uh, because I like to you know, see what's going on, um, it's always Jewish people are involved in this um, everywhere you go. Um, so it's definitely not uh, to say that Israelis and the minds of an Israeli who's been born and raised and indoctrinated in that system has anything to do with a Jewish person in London. Um, it, it's not the same thing. Um, and these are completely different circumstances, people. Um, and, and everyone has to be nuanced in the way that they look at this. Uh, because we're looking at a settler colonial 
uh, project. Um, and there's a lot of history which needs to be understood, which goes into uh, what is happening now and has pushed these people to the point where they are. And right now, what we've seen uh, and uh, how, you know, this monster has been created uh, in occupied Palestine um, yeah. has brought immense suffering to the Palestinian people. But this doesn't mean for a second that Jewish people in New York City or in London are responsible at all. Not at all. And uh, Jewish people know yeah. their history. The Jewish people I know, they, they can talk about the Sykes-Picot agreement. They can talk about the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And what France and, and, and Britain did, you know, in basically redrawing maps and deciding who owns what. I mean, Palestine before, I suppose, if it, if it belonged to anybody, and it shouldn't, it should belong to the indigenous people, it would have belonged to Turkey. So you have Sykes-Picot before that, you have the Balfour Declaration. It's my belief, I can't prove it, that Jewish youngsters, they don't learn any of this stuff in schools, no more than in Britain they learn the truly awful things the British Empire did or... You know, in the United States, they, they learn those things. Give us a quick comment on that, and then we'll talk a bit about Ukraine and, and Russia, because time is flying by. Go ahead, Robert. No, I think people are, uh, especially in a place like Israel, uh, like I said, it's a settler colonial project. Um, in order to sustain it, in order to keep that uh, regime going, uh, the young are going to go to the military there. Um, in these, you know, countries like Britain and that, you want people to be nationalistic, and that's why they get them to, you know, stand up at school assemblies and sing the national anthem and praise the queen and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and this happens all over the world with, you know, nationalism. But there, it's, you know, it's amplified because of the situation um, and because it's an ongoing project to ethnically cleanse the land um, and take it uh, and make it all Israel. So um, it's just... You know, like it's one of those uh, settler colonial projects, which is still in the making. You know, the United States was just as ugly when it was uh, being founded and was founded on genocide and slavery. Um, and, you know, similar things happened, for instance, when the French, uh, they were eventually kicked out of Algeria. What they did in Algeria, they killed millions of Algerians. So, yeah, it's it's obviously a new, unique situation by itself. Uh, but this has happened elsewhere. Um, and it's indoctrination which has led to these people believing what they do. Robert Inlakesh is our guest. Please follow him on Twitter if you haven't before. It's at Palestine 47 He's the director of Steel of the Century, Trump's Palestine-Israel catastrophe. If you want to watch that, if you haven't seen it before, don't um, rob it. Pay to watch it. Support the independent media. Robert is a political analyst. We've just lost him momentarily. He's a political analyst, journalist, and as I've just said, documentary filmmaker who's currently based in London. I think you're back, Robert. We just lost you momentarily. I was just giving out some information about you. Um, there are reports that unspeakable things have happened in Ukraine in Bucha, not just there, but in Mariupol and elsewhere. For what it's worth, you being a busy bloke, me being a busy bloke, I'll share my opinion with you. Um, there's no right or wrong in, in war. Everybody's wrong. Once you invade a country, even if it's genuinely because you are concerned about Ukraine joining NATO, even if it's genuinely because you're concerned that Ukraine might, you know, um, store... ICBMs or, or nuclear weapons on behalf of NATO. Once you roll tanks into a country and you start firing on cities and people are dying, as they inevitably will do, 
um, you lose the moral authority. That's just in my opinion. Whatever the historical grievances Russia might have had with uh, the West. But I have to balance that out by saying the anti-Russian propaganda, which I am subjected to morning, noon and night because as part of my job, I monitor the media. Well, it staggers even me. You know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. I, I can't believe that Russia is guilty of every single thing that it has been accused of. What are your thoughts? We're four or more weeks into this now. Your, your, your op-ed for RT was very good on this. What are your thoughts, Robert? Well, I'd like to note that uh, I no longer can actually work for RT because of the sanctions. Uh, I yeah. can't get paid by them anymore. Uh, so anybody that's going to call my statements here, uh, you know, puppet, uh, call me a puppet of Putin or whatever they want to, yeah, they can't even pay me. So uh, at RT for my articles, which are all about the Middle East uh, and not about Ukraine. That's right. Uh, but what I can see uh, with this, like you said, war is horrible. I hate war. I'm, I'm anti-war. I, I believe in self-defense um, and I believe uh, in uh, revolution. Uh, but when it comes to these big states waging war, I hate it because the weapons they have and the situations which lead to them always mean civilian deaths. And I don't like that. And I don't like the refugees which come as a result of that. That being said, at this point of the war, what we can see is that the way the Russians have came in is that they're not there to invade the country in the way that, for instance, the United States invaded Iraq. Uh, they wanted, meaning the United States government and military, invaded Iraq to take over the country, and later they did nation building. The Russians are clearly not coming in like that. The Russians came in at a disadvantage. Normally, if you're going to come in uh, in a conventional war that's waged by countries like Russia, if you want to, for instance, invade a country and occupy it, you need to come in uh, at a free-to-one advantage. That's just standard military, uh, you know, an, an understanding that's uh, that's out there. And if you're going to wage a military operation, this is what I hear from all of my friends who are military experts. I mean, I don't have sources inside of Ukraine, and I need to be very clear about that. I have them uh, all throughout the Middle East, but not in Ukraine. But from reporting on war for quite some time, you can tell a few things. They're not going into the major built-up city areas in most cases. They never invaded and went into the city center in Kiev. Why didn't they do that? They didn't do that because that's not the sort of war they're, they're fighting. They don't want to go in and just completely devastate the country. They are actually going for military targets. They are actually taking out military forces. And they are actually going after these neo-Nazi groups. That seems to be true from what we've seen uh, of their tactics and how they're fighting. Um, because if they were going to go into heavy built up urban areas and for, fight these groups who would be fighting with guerrilla warfare tactics, there would be a lot more dead civilians at this point. I mean, the dead soldiers on both sides, I mean, there's so many conflicting figures. Uh, but easily on the Ukrainian side, many people are putting it as high as 30,000 could have been killed. Um, the what's the Ukrainian figure about 12,000 Russians it's probably in the low thousands the actual figure of Russian troops have been killed and you know the again the figures are disputed when it comes to civilian deaths but the civilian deaths are significantly lower than the combatant deaths and this wouldn't happen if Russia was fighting a war 
uh, in which it wanted to go and occupy places. Let me so just jump, let me just jump in with with a counterpoint. This isn't me now. This is what the Ukrainians are saying. Um, you're listening to Robert Inlakesh, by the way. You, the Ukrainians are saying that Russia didn't attempt to effectively sack Kiev or Kiev because they didn't expect the fierce resistance they found when they got there. That's the Ukraine official position. And it seems to be the Western media, which you and I have just derided and criticised. But it's their, it's their contention that the Russian army wasn't as well prepared as it might have been. And as a result of that, they met fiercer opposition than they expected. And that's why they have kind of retreated from Ukraine. I'm just putting that out there. That's what they say. And I have to be honest, I'm very interested in your point of view. You wouldn't be here otherwise. And I know your point of view is totally independent. I know that. Me, I haven't a clue who to believe. Back to you, Robert. Yeah, to, to be fair, like, uh, there's a lot of reporting on this, which, you know, from the mainstream Western yeah. perspective is, I mean, this is just as bad as the reporting on the Iraq war. It's it's terrible. It's awful. It is they make up offensives. They make up facts and figures. Uh, you know, I, I don't have to go for all the examples. I'm sure you've gone through them on your show of the lies that they've told during this war. Um, but the Russians, they never wanted to go for it. If they did, like, for instance, when they stormed Maripol, I believe they used 40,000 or 50,000 troops to go in there. Um, and, you know, most of the people they used were like, uh, for instance, Chechnyans and uh, people from uh, the Donbass um, and special forces units. Uh, but they went in heavy to take Maripol because when they went in there, they actually wanted to take the city. They wanted to take control of it because they knew that this was a headquarters uh, for the ultra-nationalists, the Azov Battalion, or regiment as it's being called now, um, they went in there extremely heavy and used all their forces. The argument that the Russians weren't prepared to take Kiev, they would have needed a much larger force. If you're going to try and occupy a city like Kiev, the population is overwhelming. If you're going to face resistance, not only from uh, the military of uh, Ukraine, but the people too, uh, it's going to be a bloodbath for your yeah. soldiers if you come in out, outnumbered. So it never looked like they wanted to do that. And anyone that's being honest, uh, and, and this is according to all of the people that I speak to who are, are military experts, um, and I go to to listen to them on, on what their opinion is. I've been told that you know it would be utterly ludicrous to believe that Russia wanted to take Kiev with this amount of forces and they would have brought in reinforcements and there would have been more forces there and if planes. it looked at any point and like planes. they wanted to take it. That's a good point. L listen, I can buy that. I'm not saying I. that's my position. I, I'm, I'm being neutral here, but I can buy that. It's such a, a, a well-trained and such a large army that if it wanted to take the capital it probably could have done it and it would have used the air a lot more. That's fair enough. So is it regime change then Russia is after to get rid of Zelensky and, and, and hopefully plant, um, and, and by the way, I'm not being hypocritical here, I could criticise Russia for doing that, but, but let's not forget the United States, Victoria Newland and John Kerry oversaw the coup in 2014 that saw the uh, removal of Viktor Yanukovych. So they're all as bad as one another here, I think, on some level. So is that what you think Russia might want to do? To get rid of this guy who is buddying up to the EU, who is buddying up to NATO, and maybe get a more Russian-sympathetic president in his place? What do you think? 
I think personally, I may be wrong, but this is completely speculation, I have to be honest, uh, because I'm not an expert in Ukraine. But from what I see, I think they need Zelensky there. I think that Zelensky is the guy that needs to sign off on a peace deal. If he recognizes Crimea as belonging to Russia, and he reckons the Donbass, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk as being uh, independent, then what can the West do at that point? If he says that Ukraine is going to be neutral, then the Russians win. So I think it will be the Russians' job to keep him alive uh, and get him to submit. But it's a very difficult job to get him to submit um, because, you know, right-wingers from the right sector, Azov, are on record saying that they'll kill him. They'll hang him if he betrays them. Uh, So Zelensky doesn't have many options at this point. But I believe that the Russians uh, will probably have to use him. Uh, And if they wanted to kill him, he'd most likely have been dead at this point, in my opinion. But I don't think the Russians are coming in like that. And that's why you mentioned war crimes and what's going on. I'm not going to say there's no war crimes committed. That's a ridiculous thing for me to say. Um, They all do it, Robert, don't they? I mean, I I said this several times in the last five weeks. Excuse the interruption, you'll get plenty of time now uh, to follow up on that. But I want, I want to reiterate for anybody who's listening, I've said it doesn't matter who is in the right. Um, the, the soldiers, even those on the righteous side, historically, because of the nature of what it is they're doing, they do unspeakable things. I've been a supporter of the rights of the Palestinian people ever since I was in high school. I remain a supporter of Palestine. Um, I don't believe Israel has the right to exist. I never have done. But I don't tell lies. I know over the years that activists and freedom fighters, Palestinians, have done unspeakable things to people. It happens. It's horrendous. But if you take young men and women and you rile them up and you give them guns and you send them off to do something, morality goes out the window. So thanks for saying that, by the way. It's ridiculous for anybody, including Russia's most ardent supporters, to to hypothesise that all of this is complete nonsense, that there's not any semblance of truth to it. Because I think the media wants everything to be black and white. But I like your work, and I've liked your work for years, because you deal in the shades of grey, don't you? It's shades of grey. There's no black and white here. Yes, I'm perfectly willing to believe that Russian soldiers have done... Terrible things. Now, have they done butcher? I don't know. I have no idea. And I couldn't say that's, they have that's done. That's what I was... Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's what I was going to get to. Um, now, yeah, what, whether there's war crimes committed or not, in these sorts of wars with this amount of death and destruction ongoing, there's going to undoubtedly been atrocities committed. What ones, I cannot say. Um, and, and I don't know, honestly, I don't have the information and there's been no forensic examination of anything that's gone on recently. And, you know, the West has blocked this as well. Um, so specifically with reference to what you just said, I mean, I would look at what does Russia gain from massacring this many people? Nothing. Um, absolutely nothing. And people might say, but well, what does Israel gain from massacring Palestinians? Israel actually has a, it's part of their military strategy to massacre civilians in Gaza. A lot of people don't know that, but they, they don't have military targets in a place like Gaza, for instance. It's just and people. they've always done it to pressure the armed groups and to pressure the governments of these countries where they're bombing to stop. 
Um, and it's a pressure tactic. For instance, I'll give you an example. Towards the end of the war in May uh, last year, um, Israel pulled out the big guns and hit a place called the Wahdi Street in Gaza. And they massacred around 40, uh, 45 to 47 civilians. And the reason they did that is because that's the middle class in Gaza. They know strategically that when the middle class turns on Hamas, which is the government there, then things get very bad for Hamas. And Hamas is in a very weak position. So in order to try and apply pressure on Hamas, they hit the middle class. They bomb these big towers. Um, and, and that's what they did. But whereas the Russians, unless they're, I don't know, testing military equipment, maybe that could be, you could make sense of it that way. Um, but there's no reason for them to just do it, especially when they're, they're winning. Why would they, once they've withdrawn, why would they just go back and, and massacre people for no reason? Um, would you believe, it, it Robert, sense. would you believe a retired U.S. Army colonel, and that's a pretty serious rank, said as much as you did uh, to today? It's a guy called Douglas McGregor, a U.S. Army colonel, and he used to advise Trump. He was a senior advisor at the Pentagon, and he gave a very balanced answer about the allegations around Bucha to a podcaster called Jackson Hinkle. And McGregor said, it just makes no sense. And I liked the fact that he put the caveat on. He said, look, I'm not saying it didn't happen because I don't know. But he said it would make no sense. You know, he said that mm -hmm. when they occupied that area, there seemed to be some cooperation between the Russians and the people there. You know, they were giving them supplies and food and stuff like that. He said to retreat out of there and while retreating to kill all those people, he said it doesn't make any sense. Echoing what, what you said uh, to the, uh, today. But, you know, we're back again to the relentless propaganda by the wretched media in this country, in, in Ireland and, of course, in the United States, which is it's horrendous to, to, to look at it. Uh, and you find yourself with your head spinning, not knowing what the bloody hell is going on. I, I like to say, I go, I'm going to give you the final word on this. Uh, of course, we're, we're rapidly running out of time today. I, I look at the, if all of this is true, by the way, if all of it is real, because I talk about other issues on this show, you might be aware, the Great Reset, you know, plans to take humanity down a very dark road, a very kind of Orwellian totalitarian road. And what's happening in Ukraine suits this Great Reset agenda, if it indeed exists. But that's for another day, maybe. But accepting that all of this is real and that Putin is acting autonomously, the Russian president, and he's fed up of NATO encroachment and he doesn't want... Um, you know, Ukraine to join NATO and he doesn't want Ukraine to be palling up with the European Union. I don't understand why Russia wouldn't have just secured Donbass, Luhansk, Donetsk and kind of secured those areas and said, right now, enough's enough, we're looking after these people here and kind of drawn a line there. That's what I don't get, Robert. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that from the beginning. Well, it's a, well, it's a very similar thing like they did. They went to war with Georgia. Um, and that's for a very similar reason. And also, when you've got, like, uh, for instance, the Donbass, the fighting was happening in the Donbass for about eight years and about 14,000, 15,000 people were killed. Yeah. Um, and you have these forces there who are the inheritors of the Nazi ideology. They worship Stefan Bandera. Um, and they are hardline neo-Nazis. We're not talking about, you know, just the, you know, the, the morons which exist uh, in a lot of Western countries who are just racist. We're talking about well-organized, well-trained, 
um, trained by NATO forces, by the Americans, the British, the Germans, the Israelis. They know how to fight um, with their weapons who are threatening to attack Russian speakers uh, and ethnic Russians. So it's it's something that Russia, I think, uh, snapped on. They had a red line. The West wanted to cross it. They wanted to test them um, and they got their answer. Um, so that's that's how I see it playing out. I, I think uh, it's a very serious situation and, and Russia is not backing down on it. And that's why as well you have so much Russian public support. Yes, there is you know a lot of anti-war activists and people who don't like war. But even if you ask them, you know, whether you think that NATO has a role to play in this, of course they do. Um, but in the West, it's, you know, they are meant to believe that uh, Putin wants to create the USSR um, again, uh, and he wants to bring it back to the Soviet Union. And people even think he's a communist. Um, just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous analysis. But that's the mainstream Western. That, that's the BBC. Um, <laughs> the which, way they report, which reaches, things. which sadly reaches um, millions more people than you do and I do, despite our experience and despite the fact, you know, that um, you do the best with what you have. You do a terrifically professional job. Uh, I mean that. I'm not patronising you. It's great stuff. Great to read you in RT, um, even though you're not getting paid because of the sanctions. It's an outrage that RT was taken off. UK airwaves by Ofcom. It, it it sickens me. You've been listening to Robert Inlikesh. Check out Steel of the Century, Trump's Palestine-Israel catastrophe. He's a filmmaker based in London these days and a terrific political analyst and journalist. Robert, is there anywhere else people should go and find, apart from the, from the, from the Twitter handle, is there somewhere else you'd like people to go uh, to connect with your work? Um, I have a Patreon, which uh, I'll be getting onto uh, a lot more and creating more content soon, especially because of uh, what's happened recently with yeah. uh, not being able to work for different outlets as well. It's not just uh, RT. Um, but uh, yeah, um, there, my YouTube. Um, and I write for still a number of different outlets. Uh, Last American Vagabond, I, I write there. Brilliant. Um, I do work for El uh, Mayadeen English. Uh, Mint Press, um, a whole bunch of different ones, TRT. Um, yeah, a lot of be there, there's loads that I actually write for. Um, but to mainly to connect on me would be my Twitter, uh, Patreon, YouTube, I'd say, do, social medias. Folks, do support the genuine independent media. I love your reporting on Palestine because of the sincerity of it. It obviously means a lot to you. I've been doing this job uh, since 2009. Uh, not this particular show, and I've met one or two, uh, you know, saviors of Palestine, and they've not always been sincere, but you're sincere, pal, and I really appreciate that. I look forward to next time, Robert. Thanks for your time today, mate. I know it's valuable. Look after yourself and uh, speak soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Robert Inlakesh, live on Wednesday's Richie Allen radio show, Top Bloke, uh, director of Steel of the Century, Trump's Palestine, Israel catastrophe. Thanks to him. It's eight minutes, so it is, to the top of the hour. I'll get to some of your comments momentarily. I've not got much time left. It's just dawning on me. Um, yeah, time is flying. Just to let you know that Melissa Shumay will be among the guests on tomorrow's programme. That's Thursday. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk
And if I just load up the comments there, I can read one or two of them for you, or of you, by you, to me, from you. That's it. Get it right, Baldy. You big Baldy backstard. That's right. That's what I am, and I'm proud of it. Uh, Pandora has uh, shared a link with some pieces, uh, with some of Robert's pieces for RT. That's on richieallen.co.uk forward slash live hyphen comment. richieallen.co.uk. Go to live comment. There's a link there from Pandora. Uh, Paul says, if you look, you will find Raytheon, Lockheed and Boeing are largely owned by the Crown Corporation. Bruce says, but that is not realistic, Richie. Huge numbers of people will change direction with any wind. Wear a mask, take a jab, give meds knowing people will die, take up arms and kill strangers. History shows that again and again, says Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Richard says NATO would have moved in. Nelly says what a concise, brilliantly concise guest Robert is. Uh, I'm not great in the politics, says Nelly. I know some things. Uh, I know the game, but I'm no expert at Expert as it always seems complicated, but really it isn't at all. I liked listening to Robert. Thanks to Craig for that Spiegel link. I'll check that out a bit later on, uh, Craig, if I remember to do so. I, I say it and I mean it, but then later on I get bogged down with producing tomorrow's programme. Thanks to Pod, who says, but equally Ukraine was previously the territory of the Khazars. Personally, they are trying to get back the territory of that place. It, it has a Jewish president and prime minister. Has been since 2014 when the coup happened and Victoria Newland, uh, says Pod, who again is Jewish, put Yatsenyuk as PM, Petro Poroshenko as president, both Jewish. Us, a US Secretary of State in charge of Ukraine and making all of Biden's decisions, Anthony Blinken is also Jewish, says Pod. And now we have war crimes yet again. Uh, says Pod. Thank you, Pod, for that. Uh, David says, indoctrination to a human uh, child from day one in schooling. You haven't evolved from a monkey and you don't live on a spinning ball. He says, we don't live anywhere. It's all an illusion, David. It's an illusion. It's a holographic projection, according to some. I don't know what it is. He says we are amazing, beautiful beings that have been indoctrinated since school. I will go along with that, uh, so I will. Uh, most of that. Yes, we are indoctrinated. Patricia says, the truth is there is no right of return to Palestine. According to Mikko Paled, author of The General's Son and former guest on The Richie Allen Show, only about 1% of all Jews can trace their ancestry back to the Middle East. Thanks, uh, Patricia. I really appreciate that. Colin says, get somebody on to debate him. I've never heard of him, Colin. And you know what my experience has been lately, particularly in the last two to three to four years? It's very difficult to get people on to debate with you. Narcissism, narcissism, narcissism reigns. Narcissism reigns in the independent media. You invite people on. There is a guest who used to come on my programmes. He is a man who is an expert in hypnotherapy, in hypnosis. He's very good. I like him. He has written lots of blogs about the right-wing media and how the right-wing media is telling lies about COVID. My former guest believes that COVID is deadly, the virus is real, and that lockdowns were necessary. That's what he believes, OK? I've invited him on to debate with it. Um, no chance. He doesn't want to, because I don't agree with him. I believe that uh, COVID is a scam. I believe that... Uh, it was, if it existed, and I, I think it, it, it does, right? That's just my opinion. 
It's a very mild respiratory infection. Lockdowns were tyrannical. They were evil. They've killed maybe millions of people. The jabs are deadly. Now, my former guest, who I got on pretty well with, he believes it's all real and that the independent media has gone crazy and has fallen for a big Russian conspiracy uh, in, in, in saying that COVID is a scam. But yet he won't come on to debate me. It's astonishing to me. It's gone. I can't get a debate to save my life. And I like debates because I'm a nice guy. I like to listen to people who disagree with me. I don't shout them down. I don't insult them. I don't marginal. I certainly don't cut them off. Can't get a debate. Maybe somebody will give me a debate for my birthday later this year. Maybe that will happen and we'll all be happy. Happy birthday, Richie. Here's a debate for you. That was The Richie Allen Show. Thanks so much to Robert Inlakesh. Thanks to you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Look after yourselves and one another. Join me tomorrow at 5 for Thursday's programme. Slán Tomo.